0: Hi, I'm George Stocker, and this is the Build Better Software Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Michael Countahan, lead software engineer at Walt Disney World, and I want to welcome you to the show.
1: Thank you, George. Happy to be here.
0: So, uh, for the, those of us who may not know about you or what you do, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Where can I start? I am halfway through my third decade of professional software development. It was way back in the ninth grade in Bowie High School. When the data processing teacher, we actually had that class, took pity on me and allowed me to essentially use her dumb terminals in the classroom after school to teach myself BASIC. Uh, That led to a love for computers and software that never really waned, Uh, even though it was about 10 years after graduation before I got my very first paid software development gig. And I even got burned out in the late 2000s, well, mid, mid to late 2000s, and didn't work for three years in the industry. And fortunately, that, uh, that changed, and I'm now in my 10th year at, uh, at Disney with uh, Disney Parks Experiences and Products, where I build what we call cast-facing web applications,
0: so applications for the internal uh, employees that uh, work at Microsoft, or not Microsoft, at uh, Disney
1: World. Correct. As you may or may not be aware, Disney Parks refers to their employees as cast members because the entire place, if you will, is uh, the metaphor is, a, is an ongoing show. So even us, we, we're called back of house cast members because we're never on stage.
0: And now you have a a book that just came out, uh, which I had the privilege to read. It's called Don't Say That at Work. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: What can I tell you about that? As you can probably imagine, if you've done anything for any length of time, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Hopefully you recover from those mistakes and learn from them. This book is about some of what I consider the more egregious errors that I've made over my career. In some cases mistakes that somebody else might have made, or things that I've observed, and I just decided to put them down in essay form. Came up with 20 topics and went ahead and published the book. So far, it's been well-received.
0: Now, before we uh, dive uh, deeper into your background, I want to dive a little bit into the book. And in the book, you talk about uh, not only you know mistakes that, that you've made, but also uh, things that both software engineers and software leaders should be aware of. And you have a story in it uh, about, uh, about one of your bosses. Can you go deeper into that story?
1: I mentioned a few different bosses in uh, the stories. Which one are you talking about in particular?
0: It was, it was a boss that uh, was not, uh, was not altogether truthful.
1: That was a fun experience because that was very early in my career. And so I was still naive, wet behind the ears, whatever phrase you want to use and I never had a college degree, at least not at that point. I was a uh, University of Maryland computer science dropout twice. Uh, so when I got my very first software development job in 1995, I felt very fortunate that someone was willing to give me a, a chance without a degree. That did not turn out too well, and then I got my second job, and that was th- this particular boss. Not only did he not give me the job that he hired me to do, which was that of a Macintosh developer. And uh, yes, I was a Mac developer before it was cool, back when we used Pascal. But not only did he not give me the job that he had hired me to do, a few years into the into the job, I want to say about a year and a half, maybe two years, he asked me to falsify my resume. Because what he would do was send resumes of his employees when he uh, when he would bid on a job. So we were a, we were an independent software development shop, and he would go and bid on different development projects, bring them back in-house, and then he would manage the project. So this particular client wanted only college graduates to work on the, their project. And you know, that's their prerogative. I didn't have a degree, and when I pointed that out to him, he did two things very quickly. One, he got annoyed with me for not having a degree, even though he knew that and then second, he went ahead and modified my resume to say that I had a computer science degree when he sent it to the client. As you can imagine, I didn't take that very well, but this is my my boss, this is my livelihood, you know, what can you do about it? Um, Eventually, I decided that I couldn't, in good conscience, keep working for this guy, so I started looking for other jobs, uh, went ahead and submitted my resignation, and turned over the key to the office, and Walked out the door, essentially.
0: But that's not the end of it, is it?
1: It is not. <laughs> you have read the book. So right after I resigned, I thought we were on pretty good terms. He sent me an email that said, hey, would you mind signing this affidavit? I just need something for for the record saying that, you know, you officially quit and you don't have any company property and then you're not going to solicit any of our clients or, or employees to try to, you know, poach them. I was good with that. I looked through it. Didn't seem to be anything scary in there. So I signed it and sent it back. A day or two later, I was cleaning out my desk at at home, my my work from home desk. And I found a couple of CDs that obviously belonged to my employer, my former employer. So I sent off a quick email to him. I said, uh, hey, I've got these CDs. Um, I must have overlooked them. If you want, I can bring them by the office sometime, put them in the mail, whatever you want. Set them aside. Didn't think anything more about it. That Saturday, I got a priority overnight FedEx letter from his attorney, accusing me of stealing not only the CDs, but also source code. And informing me that I was now the subject of both civil and criminal investigations.
0: And so at that point, how were you how are you feeling like to get that <laughs> that letter?
1: Petrified. Absolutely terrified. And here I am, I've got a wife and a a newborn, I think my son was about 18 months old, maybe close to two years. And here I am being told that I'm going to be arrested and thrown in prison, because I committed perjury by saying that I hadn't kept any company property.
0: But you did the right thing in that you engaged a lawyer, and this is kind of a note to anybody that ever gets in this situation, talk to a lawyer uh, before you do anything. Uh, and you talked to a lawyer, and, and how did the lawyer help?
1: I did talk to a lawyer, but keep in mind, it was Saturday. There was no Google. There wasn't really much of an internet in uh, 1997 to speak of. So I, there wasn't a lot of research I could do. There wasn't a lot, I couldn't go to a website and ask questions or you know legal online forums. I had to go to the yellow pages for New Hampshire, find a lawyer pretty much at random, and wait until Monday. So I had to wait two whole days, not knowing what was going to happen. And then Monday morning, I, I called someone that I had found that offered uh, one-hour free consultations and explained to him what had happened. He had me come into his office with everything that I had, you know, the letter, the, the the email, the the letter that I had signed saying that I wasn't going to take anything, and meet him in his office that morning. When I got there, he reviewed everything, he heard my side of the story, he said, this seems like overkill. This seems kind of silly. He said, "Let me just go ahead and give this guy a call. Maybe we can d- take care of it right now. I won't even charge you anything. I'll just, I'll just, you know, help you take care of it." And when he made the call, my boss flipped out. I don't think he was expecting me to fight back. I assumed he just thought I would roll over and cower, which is kind of what I wanted to do. But one of the one of the cool things about the call from my attorney said. uh, Let's call him Mr. Smith. He said, Mr. Smith, you can't go around threatening criminal prosecution to, you know, as a private citizen. He said, that's not how this works. He says, in fact, you could be putting yourself in legal jeopardy by doing that in this state. He goes, so I would appreciate it if you don't go around making threats like that to my client. You know, now I'm getting nice and puffed up. That was the wrong thing to say to this guy. <laughs> he, he was not one that, that could be intimidated. And, and I could hear through the other end of the phone. He was just screaming at my attorney. Eventually, everything calmed down. But uh, when they got off the phone, the, the lawyer looked at me and said, well, I thought we could take care of this pretty easily, but it looks like not. And so I had to hire him officially and give him a $500 retainer. And then he took over negotiations with my former boss's attorney. And the way it all ended up, I ended up driving to this other attorney's Office, giving him the two CDs and another affidavit, and believe it or not, I was also required to apologize for putting my boss and all you know, in his company through this ordeal, and it cost me five hundred dollars uh, for the privilege of doing that. But in the end, I never served any prison time, so I guess it's all good.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it was it, it was a harrowing story to read, um, and it it reinforced at least for me. Uh, in my background is is ensuring that when you're interviewing at a company or when you're working somewhere, you know, if you see small things that look like they're out of place, you you see small moral uh, misgivings uh, that that can, you know, that's not just the first time that somebody's done something bad, you know, falsifying your resume and sending it out to his clients or, you know, prospective clients for the company is not Probably the first time that they've done something that is uh, ethically questionable, and you know, to be on the lookout for that because it could lead to, in fact, what you went through, which is uh, a pretty harrowing experience.
1: It was definitely a harrowing experience.
0: Now, uh, on a on a lighter side in the book, you know, the book has uh, twenty some odd lessons about things not to do at work, and one of the other uh, passages that really stuck with me was don't say no at work, and you give an example of how things are handled uh, during a Walt Disney experience. Can you go into more detail?
1: Yes, and let me preface that by just explaining that I am not a Disney operations cast member. I don't work in the parks. Well, I do sometimes, but that's not my job. So I haven't been through a lot of this training, but I've seen it in action, and I've always marveled at it. So if if a... if I can, let me start with a real quick story that's not in the book. Have you been to Walt's New World?
0: Uh, I have. Uh, about, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, about 20 years ago now. I only, I've only been once. Okay.
1: Um, so the location that I'll mention probably wasn't, won't mean anything to you. Uh, in the One of the newer sections of Magic Kingdom is New Fantasyland. And in New Fantasyland is the Beast's Castle from Beauty and the Beast. And in that castle is an, a restaurant called Be Our Guest. And on one of the few occasions that I have actually gotten to work in the parks, I was helping out on a, on a abnormally, let's see, what, how how to put this the right way? It was a holiday period with increased park attendance. How's that? And I was working in B.R. Guest kind of as a volunteer, helping with keeping parties together and handing out menus. And someone came up to me holding the menu and they said, hey, can I keep this? Keep it, what do you mean you know until you get in your food? No, no, I want to keep it for you know forever as a souvenir, and I was taken aback as I'd never heard that question before, and it wasn't something that I was trained to deal with, and my first thought is, well, of course you can't keep this. it's you know people need these it's it's a menu, and so that was my instant reaction was, no, of course not. The look on the guest's face when she handed me the menu and walked away something I won't forget anytime soon. And what I learned from that, from the manager in the in the restaurant, was we don't tell guests no. So what if they make something, you know, what if you can't accommodate them? What if it really is an unreasonable request? And she said, well, first of all, that's not an unreasonable request. People take our menus all the time. We're we're aware of that. Goes, Second, you need to learn to say no without saying no. Okay. <laughs> so that leads me to the story that's in the book. And uh, we were in my family and I were in Disney's Hollywood Studios outside of the Sci-Fi Dining restaurant. And we had reservations and we had checked in and we were waiting for our table or our car, if you've ever been there. And people would come up to the hostess at the podium outside of the restaurant and ask, do you have any tables available? And I never once heard her say the word no. And I watched for quite a while. She would say things like, I'm sorry, we don't have any tables available. But would it be okay if I helped you find another restaurant nearby? That seemed to be her go-to answer. Or you know, another possibility for another restaurant might be: Could we seat you at the bar? Could we? Can you know? Could, would you be okay? Or would you be open to takeout? Apparently, some of the Disney restaurants do that, and I did not know that at the time. So there are all sorts of ways to tell people no without telling them no, because when you tell them no, the conversation's over. You really can't go any further. But if you say. I'm afraid I can't help you in that particular request. Is there another way I can help you and we can move forward? Or there we don't have any tables now, but what about an hour from now? Would that work for you? So the goal is always to be trying to help rather than just shutting down saying no so you can move on with your day.
0: There are a lot of stories uh, in your book, and they and they all seem to have a a, a personal perspective to it, which provides uh, a lot more of an emotional background. Um, and we won't go into the example here too much, but you you, you put yourself into this book you know, with, with all of the examples that you wrote. Like the time that, and people should read the book, but like the time that you were on a, a, a net meeting call and accidentally, uh, after a, a rather tense uh, conversation, accidentally ended the conference for everybody on the call. And it's, it's just like, it, I can feel... how much of yourself you put into this book, and it it shows when you're reading on the pages, and I feel like I was feeling those emotions with you uh, while you were writing it. How was that process for you?
1: For the most part, it was just me in a brain dump of what I remembered about the situation. And the particular one that you're referring to now, I call it my temper tantrum. Uh, That was at HP back in 2005. And the reason I remember that one so well is because I almost wrote a book at the time about it, and I never got any farther than a bunch of chapter titles. And so I was cleaning out my hard drive one day, and I found this file. I'm looking through it, and I said, I remember this. Oh, yeah, I had forgotten about that. I'd forgotten about that. Oh, yeah, I remember doing that. So in that one, and I think that's probably one of the more detailed chapters in the book, it's because I had all that information right in front of me that I could draw from. Now, if you're asking, how was it emotionally? Looking back on it, it's just kind of funny to me now. Because I remember right after I hung up on that call, I started getting instant messages from my coworkers. Did you just hang up on everybody? And I said, you know, did I? Oh, I, I guess I did because I initiated the call. And, you know, it's not like today's Zoom calls. if you click leave, it says, you know, disconnect everybody, yes or no. It was just the call has been ended by the uh by the originator or something of that nature and it was done
0: now you are the uh lead software engineer at
1: disney be careful hang and... on let me let me correct you there i am a lead software engineer it's a title it's not i'm not the lead the lead of anything
0: the lead the, the only yes, lead at you would... No, you're one of several leads correct at disney.
1: in fact there are four leads on my on the team that i'm currently on so
0: now as a lead uh at disney uh, what does that entail? What does your day-to-day look like?
1: It really depends on the project. So I've done everything from lead the team, which is what you'd expect from the title. So I was on a team and I would help with the running the, the stand-ups and work with the, the business owners on story grooming and everything you might imagine that a lead would do. And seeing the project through from initial funding through planning through execution and delivery, through getting sustainment turned over. So I've done that. These days, with everything going on uh, in the world and with, with Disney, it's more of a, where do we need something right this second? Can you go help with that? Uh, it wasn't long ago that I was writing Node scripts to talk to Jira. The uh, I don't even know how you... Qual, qual, what sure. do you call Jira. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to. I try not to uh, also, no. but at this point uh, in time... Project
0: management system.
1: Right, so we were moving the, the system, system from from one machine or one version to another, and uh, they wanted some custom code written to copy a lot of the, the issues from one system to the other. They said, well, Mike, do you know Node? I do know Node. All right, can you run with this for a few weeks? Sure, because literally it's wherever we need you right now. And I think that's a, a result of COVID. At this point, I'm just happy how, to have a job.
0: <laughs> and how big uh, is your team at Disney?
1: About a dozen of us. Total, including some managers, BAs, um, developers, testers, et cetera.
0: Okay, and the and this team is the team responsible for uh, internal-facing uh, cast member applications, or are there mm-hmm. several there teams? There are several do
1: teams, so I, I want to be careful not to try to, you know, dig into the, the internal structure or workings of, right. uh, of the company uh, because I am not a spokesman for the company. So I'm working on a very small vertical segment for reservations, and that's about as far as I'll go into at this point.
0: Okay. Now, during your career, you've worked at Disney, you've worked at HP, uh, and, you, and you talked about a little bit uh, at the top of the show, you talked about uh, a few years where you were burnt out. Can you talk about what led up to that to that burnout? That temper tantrum, and how you recovered for it. It was, it was the, temper the temper tantrum.
1: tantrum. Um, I think this is in the book that I was given the opportunity to stay on with with HP. They didn't fire me, um, but they also didn't let me continue on in that project the way I had been because I was I was a de facto leader on that project, and so when I made the decision to do what I did, that uh, that led to the the call and the temper tantrum. Um, I kind of knew that if it didn't work, it was going to be bad, but I did it anyway. So when my manager called, and she was in uh, California at the HP headquarters out there, and I was in southern New Hampshire, so we couldn't have been farther away physically if we had tried, she gave me the option to stay on with HP for no less than a year in a probationary state, which meant no, no raises, no potential... Promotions or anything like that. So, and then they would revisit it in 12 months to see where I had, whether I had been a good boy for for the year. I did not relish the idea in 2005 of continuing on a project that at this point was five years old and written in Visual Basic 6. So I told her I had another option for her, Annette, that I would just give her my two week notice and she wouldn't have to deal with me anymore. She negotiated an extra two weeks out of me. So I stayed around for another month after that, essentially helping the the contractors that they had hired understand the, the software. And then I left. A few months later, I packed up. I moved from southern New Hampshire to central New Hampshire. And for the next two and a half to three years, I was a failed real estate investor. And I say failed because it started out pretty good. And then I started losing money and losing money and losing money.
0: Was that around the time that the, the bubble burst on housing?
1: Yes. Right after I made my first few deals where, I, where it looked like, hey, you know, I can make a living doing this. And so I started making a living doing that. And then suddenly I was no longer making a living doing that. You know, I went from making $50,000 on two deals in a row to making $15,000 on a deal. Well, that, that's okay. You know, If you do one of those a month, that's still pretty good, right? And then $7,000 on a deal and then barely breaking even on a deal. And you'd think that with a software development background, that the pattern would emerge, but it didn't because I was blinded by my desire to make it work. And so from there, where I should have simply stopped, I lost over the next few years, I think I lost over $200,000. So that was fun.
0: I'm I'm trying not to like betray the the fact that my mouth is a gape and I'm like, "Oh, that's, you know, that's that's a lot of money."
1: Fortunately, but, I didn't lose it. I mean, it didn't come out of my pocket personally. Um, what had happened was the, the properties were over leveraged. And there were two in, in general that, that really were the, the killer. And I don't know if you want a, a real estate story that's not in the book, but I consider it one of my biggest failures.
0: I, failure is, is something that helps us learn, so sure.
1: There was a house, and in reality it was a mobile home. It was a quote-unquote manufactured home in the town of Jaffrey, New Hampshire, right at the base of Mount Monadnock, the tallest mountain in southwest New Hampshire. Gorgeous countryside, beautiful mountain views. It was a pristine, open, level lot that someone stuck a mobile home in the middle of. But the price was right. It was in good condition. It already had a tenant in it. So I went ahead and bought it. And then immediately refinanced it. Because it was undervalued. I (laughs) I took the cash to put it into another property in Concord, New Hampshire, which is the the state capital. So I'll get to that one in a minute. But The tenant I had already talked to, and she wanted to buy the place, but she needed some time to to line up her finances. I said, well, you know what? This is a great opportunity for me. I bought the property from the original owner, who was an out-of-state landlord, refinanced it, took $80,000 in cash out to fund the next investment, immediately put it under contract with the tenant and said, okay, um, you'll pay rent to me because, you know, you're still a tenant. You'll pay rent to me until we go to closing. She said, that's great. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make it even better. I'll credit you the monthly rent towards the purchase price between now and closing. She said, wonderful. We're all friends. Everybody's happy. Tenants don't always keep their word. I don't don't know if you're aware of this, but sometimes they stop paying rent. And that is exactly what this one did. And what I later found out is that that was the reason that the house was available in the first place. She hadn't been paying rent to the other guy either. She gave me one or two months, I guess, to string me along and then stop paying. (sighs) New Hampshire is pretty uh, landlord friendly, not tenant friendly. They're pretty landlord friendly. So I gave her an opportunity to to catch up, said, hey, do you even still want to buy this place? And she finally admitted to me that there was no way she would ever qualify to buy the house. So, we agreed that she was just going to go ahead and move out. A month went by. I heard nothing. Jaffrey was a little bit too far for me to be driving by on a regular basis. So I figured I'd give it another week and then maybe I'd I'd drive out and see what's going on. Instead, I got a phone call from the town of Jaffrey. I said, well, this can't be good. They said, uh, Mr. Callahan, we just wanted to let you know that we've shut the water off to your property on Mountain Road." I said, "May I ask why?" They said, "Yeah, the uh the the water guy reading the meter, he said, we noticed that you had used twice the amount of water that you normally do in a month. So he went to the door, knocked. The only sound, nobody answered the door, but the only sound he could hear was water running. Oh, no. This was probably January. I don't know where you live, but January in New Hampshire is cold. Single digits for weeks at a time. What he, or what we eventually discovered... Was that the tenant had left, took all of her stuff, moved out, turned off the electricity. Now there's no heat. The water pipe leading to the toilet froze and broke. Oh, no. When the temperature went back up and, uh, and the pipe unfroze, now it's spewing water throughout the entire pl- uh, property. By the time I got there, it had all drained out because the floor had collapsed, for the most part, with all the water. And there were water stains going up about a foot on the walls. So this thing was a foot underwater at one point. And as I mentioned, it's a manufactured home. It can't handle that. The walls were destroyed. The floor was destroyed. There was nothing salvageable about this place. I eventually talked the the lender that had refinanced it into accepting $80,000 for the property when it was originally had been valued around $200,000. And I sold it to a guy who was going to demolish the thing and build his own house on it. So... That was $120,000 paper loss. I still had the money from the the cash out, from the refinance. But for some bizarre reason, they didn't ask for that. And, well, I guess I didn't have it because it was in the next house. Um, So they ended up taking what's called a short sale. So they accepted less for payoff. And then they sent me a, a 1099 tax statement for the remainder. So I had to pay income taxes on that, on that quote unquote gain.
0: Which is really just the amount that you wouldn't have, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, the you you get back into software development after this this hiatus. Um, you know, what was it like getting back into software development, and you know, what did you do?
1: I got a call from a friend of mine, a guy I went to high school with, who knew that I had been a computer nut since ninth grade. He had a company in Maryland. And he needed a software developer, contractor, essentially. He said, hey, I know you really, really want to do this real estate thing. He says, but I could use a favor. Would you be open to maybe 10, 20 hours a week just consulting and doing a little bit of programming for me? That led to a heart-to-heart conversation with him after I agreed. I did it for a little while, part-time, because he said I could do it from New Hampshire. I didn't have to come to Maryland. But then after my next real estate disaster, and there was a funny one after that, that one, he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, I think you might be better off if you stick to your core competencies. And as long as I've known you, your core competency has been software development and I could use you. So at that point, he offered me and I accepted a full-time job with this company. And that's how I went back into the industry.
0: And from there, you eventually found your way uh, do you work uh, or do you live in Florida now?
1: I do. So the, the Maryland gig led to, was, uh, was a number of years, probably a good three years remote work. I flew down to Maryland once or twice a month just to show my face in the office. And that company eventually went out of business, um, financial problems, right? You, if you don't sell, you don't, you don't bring in revenue. You can't stay in business. That led to a couple of minor contracts here and there, and then I got a a chance to go to Dell in Texas. The skills I picked up at Dell in Texas directly led to my current gig at Disney World. So if I hadn't gone to Dell, I probably wouldn't have qualified for my current job and could not be more grateful for the path that, that, that I've been on since then.
0: And so what were those things that you learned at Dell?
1: I was hired at Dell essentially to be an ASP.NET developer. When I, and when I say ASP.NET, I mean web forms, if you're familiar with that at all. So doing C Sharp, server-side C Sharp web development with heavy web form technology. While we were at Dell, or while I was at Dell, Microsoft came and did a, I'm trying to remember what they called it. It was like a developer conference, but it was only for people at Dell. So it was just a small conference room at a local hotel, and I was excited when I heard about it, but then I figured it was only going to be for employees. But they said, no, 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 go ahead and take – I said, we can't pay you to go, but you're welcome to go. So I went ahead and went. I met um, uh, Phil Hack, who was with Microsoft at the time.
0: Now, was this when uh, they were introducing ASP.NET MVC exactly. for the first time? Well,
1: it wasn't the very first time because it was MVC version 2. Version 1 didn't impress me much. So we we kind of stuck with uh with with web forms. But it was the perfect time, the perfect opportunity because the project I was on was feeling heavy. It had a lot of a lot of code that was there specifically to do the things that MVC 2 gave you out of the box. So over the next I think it was there about a year and a half total. I was able to take what I had been introduced to at that developer seminar and helped rewrite that entire project with MVC2. And I think the code size got cut in half because of all the boilerplate we were just able to delete.
0: And things like view state. <laughs> oh,
1: gosh. I had forgotten <laughs> and, and the that word. How could you bring that back into my mind?
0: <laughs> I, I will never forget my scars with web forms, sadly.
1: Yeah, so MBC2 and that technology led me to, when I interviewed with Disney, um, that was one of the technologies that I had on my resume. and They asked me about it, so I explained that story to them. And it turned out that the people who interviewed me knew a lot of the folks at Microsoft. And so they were, I guess I I dropped the appropriate name, and so I got that job.
0: And now at Disney, uh, what sort of technology stack do you use?
1: I don't think this is a secret. Yeah, I don't think it's a secret, because if you look at if you go to DisneyTech.com, you you can find job postings for uh, for all sorts of web development technologies, but it is mostly Node and Angular. So, I don't think it's a secret You know, if we're advertising for that. So, just about everything I do these days is either Node or Angular. Um, I have not... I was hired as a .NET developer. I haven't done .NET since... 2012 2013 except for one time when I uh I kind of sneaked it into a project not the same story yeah not it wasn't the same as my uh as my my temper tantrum <laughs> but it was a very similar circumstance it was folks the dot net will work perfectly here let's just use it but instead of being sneaky about it I got the uh, approval up front to do it interestingly enough sorry that that project went live on Valentine's Day, so February 14th, 2018. It's now been two and a half years. The .NET portion of that application has had one problem in production, and it was a configuration typo on my part. Other than that, it's been flawless. They don't reboot it. They don't touch it. It just works. I wish I could say the same for most of our web technologies.
0: Yeah, I find myself uh, cursing Angular every few months or so as we upgrade. Uh, but one of the things I noticed about Angular is that it really does remind me a lot of web forms. It's the it's the same paradigm, just this time shifted all the way to the
1: client and and wrapped up in a pretty new bow. Interesting you say that because I'm I'm fond of telling people that it reminds me of Silverlight.
0: Did you were you able to uh, develop in Silverlight before they killed it?
1: Yes, I did both WPF and Silverlight.
0: Yeah, uh, they are now. I guess Blazor today would be the new. Would be the new silver light. Uh,
1: yeah, I haven't looked at it.
0: Yeah, so you know, as a technology leader, uh, one of your jobs, I, I assume, is to uh, evaluate uh, new technology choices uh, and you know, ensuring that it works for your organization. Now, what are some questions that you ask yourself and that you ask your team when someone brings up a new technology choice, like, let's say, Blazor or, you know, moving from template-driven forms to reactive forms in Angular?
1: Well, I guess I have to start by correcting um, your, your original uh, supposition there, and that is that I really don't have a lot of say in what technologies we use. As you can imagine, it's a huge company. So there are teams whose job it is to, is to evaluate those technologies. I was on one of those teams once, and that's kind of where we came where we came up with Angular, or the use of Angular in Node.
0: Is it sort of like an architectural review board of some sort?
1: Something like that, yes. Um, so there's there are teams that make these decisions, they evaluate these technologies, they come up with uh, reference implementations of these technologies, they set up training to show people how to use these technologies, they approve open source technologies, or maybe in some cases do not approve open source technologies. Do you need me to say that again? Did you hear the buzz?
0: I did, but it's, it's okay. Um, Now with, how do you interact, you know, in, in general, what are your, what is your advice for interacting with such uh, a committee? Because I've, I've, I've had those, I've interacted with them in the past, but I've also been on small teams also where you have a lot more autonomy. How do you, you know, what's your advice for trying to sell them on an idea you have?
1: I think the the trick... So when this team started, I was actually on it. I had been lent out from my manager to work for a few months on that team. And one of the early decisions we made is that we don't want this architecture team to be considered an ivory tower. We don't want to be up you know, in our tower on high making commandments. But instead, we wanted it to be collaborative. And although we didn't really get what we were hoping for... Um, I think we had envisioned almost an open source model. If, you know, here's our, here are our GitHub repos. If you have something to add, add it. We'll, we'll, we'll take pull requests. We'll, we'll collaborate. We'll do whatever you need to do so that it feels like a partnership, not just a thou shalt do this. And for the most part, I think that worked. This would have been 2015, 2016. So it's been four or five years. And some of that spirit lives on in the team. So they they will collaborate. They will, They will send someone to a project to help collaborate on the development and the selection of the technology. And if the technology that the development team needs is not currently in the approved basket, there is a reasonably simple process to get it approved. Uh, For example, I had to use Ionic once, or I didn't have to. I I chose to use the Ionic framework for a project that was very time-and-dollar sensitive. Ionic had not been approved by this team. Fortunately, the project was given to this team, and I was sent to the team to help not only build the project, but also to help sway the technology choice. And so after a little bit of demonstration and some proofs of concept, I was able to show, hey, we really do need to use Ionic for this project to get it done quickly ahead of schedule and under budget. Because in this particular case, there were a bunch of old Windows CE handheld devices that were going to stop working by the end of the year because of um, they were no longer receiving security updates and would not be able to handle the new Wi-Fi certificates. So they were going to die if we didn't do something. So we were able to use... The technology we needed to, and because of that, Ionic got approved for use in the company.
0: Yeah, and for people who may not know what Ionic is, it is a, a hybrid mobile application framework. Uh, it uses, uh, it sits well. The old version, the, the version one X, sat on top of Cordova, and was effectively a UI framework and a you know, a runtime for uh, producing mobile applications that could work on both Android and. Uh, iOS-based devices. Um, Now, what were your constraints where Ionic made the most sense? Was it those constraints? Was it the UI framework and just the the speed of development with JavaScript?
1: Um, A little both. So I've told this story publicly before, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm authorized to continue sharing it. It was for Disney's Magical Express, and they have handheld devices where when you come here on vacation... You can sign up for Disney's Magical Express. It's a shuttle from the airport to the resort, and they take care of your luggage as well. So you get luggage tags sent to you a few weeks before your arrival, and you put your, put these tags on your luggage, and they've got barcodes on them. At the airport, they wanted to use ruggedized Android devices to scan these barcodes. At the resorts, when you get to Walt Disney World property, they were using iPhones. So there was an argument early on about, well, are we going to do it for Android? Or are we going to do it for iPhone? And so I raised my hand. I said, well, why don't we just do it for both? Well, we don't have that kind of time or budget. Well, no, no, we'll use Ionic and then we'll just deploy it to either, you know, to both of them because Ionic can do that. So they asked me to do a proof of concept. And the hardest part about the proof of concept was the fact that they had a hardware vendor chosen for the barcode reader. They weren't going to use the camera because the camera is too slow. So they had a hardware barcode reader, and I fired off an email to their support folks, and I asked them if they supported Ionic. And the reply I got back was something to the effect of, never heard of it. But if you can handle Cordova, we have a plugin. So, okay. Downloaded their plugin, fired up a new Ionic project, deployed it to my iPhone, and that afternoon was scanning barcodes of Kleenex boxes, soda bottles, everything that, that I could find in the conference room. So they said, cool, use Ionic.
0: Yeah, that's the, uh, when I was uh, dealing with, I was dealing with Bluetooth Low Energy, uh, BLE, and the the hardest part, just like for you, the hardest part was the device interaction, for the hardest part for us was, you know, tapping into the Bluetooth on the device, and there were Cordova plugins for it, uh, and in Ionic, you know, you wanted to wrap those into uh, Angular uh, wrappers, and that allowed us to, you know, use these uh, Cordova plugins inside of the application. Uh, but that was, in fact, the hardest part was anything dealing with the device. If you had nothing, if you had to, d- didn't have to deal with the device at all, any of the device hardware, uh, it probably the easiest thing out there. Um, but still, it's even easier uh, using Ionic than it is to try to do the same thing with Android that you would do with iOS. Now, in the time we have left, um, you know, where can people learn more about you and where can people grab your book?
1: The place to learn more about me is probably my blog website, which is walkingriver.com. My books are all available at Amazon. You can simply search for Michael D. Callahan, um, or you can go to walkingriver.gumroad.com. Anything, any title that's not Amazon exclusive will be available at Gumroad.
0: Wonderful. Now, the book is uh, Don't Say That at Work, and it's Lessons from Michael Callahan. And my guest today has been... Uh, Michael Callahan. Mike, thanks for joining me.
1: It was a pleasure, sir. I appreciate you having me.
0: All right, folks. That'll do it for this week. We'll see you next time on the Build Better Software Podcast. Thanks.